was thinking about that before we prayed. There's times that the Lord completely overwhelms us with His love and His gentleness, His presence, and so little of what we do that matters is religion. It's bigger and deeper than that. It's alive, isn't it? Um, I do want to get back to this message that I started last week, and I'll remind you of a little bit of the foundation we laid last week, but I want you to pray for me because this has been on my heart to some degree ever since I knew I would be preaching here. I feel like it's foundational teaching, but also with the Lord's help, it would be more than just teaching. And I want Him to help me. I want Him to open our hearts and our our minds. Isaiah 66 is where we read last week, and I'm going to remind us of that, remind us of the text from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20, that tells us Jesus gave us a new and living way. And this message is the power of a new and living way, the second part, part two. And I will read again Isaiah 66, the portion that we're talking about. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. And they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. I won't recap everything we talked about last week. Part of it is because none of it was in my notes, so I couldn't recap all of it. I tried to speak from my heart last week about the foundation of this, about the foundation of having a broken heart and a crushed spirit. We're reminded of David saying that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and a crushed spirit. And last week we talked about how all of us, anybody who has tasted and experienced the glory of God, anybody who has ever been saved by His grace has come to a place where we were completely broken and we surrendered. Now different people of different ages and different sin baggage levels (laughs) describe it different ways. Sometimes little children are saved and they just talk about a a heavy, sick feeling that the Lord lifts away, that He gives them peace. Sometimes older people, it's a bigger struggle and there's more stuff that we need to repent of. Sometimes our sins are, are heavier, but every person who's been saved by God's grace came to the end of themselves. That's why the Lord is near to those who are broken in heart and crushed in spirit. The contrite spirit is crushed. And I also mentioned last week, I think, that it's, it's tragic and ironic, both, that many Christians, many professing Christians, that's the only time in their life they were ever completely broken when God saved them. To be saved requires a point of unconditional surrender. And to serve God effectively requires the same unconditional surrender. But so many people, the last time they unconditionally, completely surrendered was the day of salvation. And I want to tell you, I don't want to mince words, if you aren't living a surrendered life, you're wasting your life. Period. That seems harsh, that's too direct. It's true. We can't serve the Lord effectively unless He's near to us. He's not going to be near to us unless we're broken and crushed in spirit, unless we have a lowly heart in comparison to our thoughts of Him. 
We need Him. And that's what's on my heart today as we talk about the power of this new and living way is how we need God. There is nothing else that will help us. We tend to believe, and I'm going to use some of my notes. I'm not a big note preacher. I'll talk about that in this message some, but there's a time you, I think it's appropriate. And this has been on my heart too long not to have some notes. So just pray I'll follow the Lord. I'll do my best to. We tend to believe, I'm talking about Westerners in particular, but humans also. We tend to believe that religious activity has some value or some merit. Even us. We grew up in a culture. I'd say all of us grew up in a culture where people around us are either A, religious, they just don't care about it, they do whatever they want. They're at the golf course or the park or the lake on Sunday or the movies or the groceries. They just Religion's not a part of their life at all. And sometimes we look at people like that and think we're better than them because religion is a part of our life. And I'm here to tell you, part of what's on my heart is we're not any better than them because we're more religious. It can be dangerous. I preached a message one time called Religiously Disadvantaged. It's, it's almost dangerous, more dangerous to be religious without the power of God than it is to just be an honest sinner, desperate for deliverance. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go to church or church isn't valuable or you shouldn't come if you don't you know, feel overwhelmed by God's presence. Church always has value. The assembly has value. It's not always an emotional outpouring of something. But religion alone has no merit in God's eyes. None. And I, with the Lord's help, we'll prove that. We say things like, uh, there needs to be a balance. I hear people say that all the time. A balance in like preaching and worship. Like We need to have a, a plan so it's smooth and so people feel comfortable, but, but we also need to follow the Lord. And while on the surface that sounds true, and I would agree with it on the surface, in practice, you've seen this, you know it in your spirit, in practice, usually the more uh, routine we have, the less revelation we have. The more plans we have, the less of God's... Spirit manifesting Himself typically. Now there's times that He can come and blow up our plans and our routines and everything and I pray for that. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying chaos is pleasing to the Lord or not having any kind of... I mean, we come to church, we meet at a certain time, start at sort of a certain time and, and we know, otherwise we couldn't invite people. We need some kind of... Yes. But... We've got to get away from this idea that anything routine or religious gives us any merit in God's eyes. And we feel that way. Unless He strips us of it. I hear people talk about there needs to be a, a balance in preaching. There needs to be a balance between preparation and revelation. Listen, if there's not the power of God, it's not preaching. It doesn't matter how well you prepared. It doesn't matter how good of a speaker I could be. If God's power is not in that message, it's not preaching. It might be some good ideas. It might be some necessary teaching. But what we are desperate for is the power of God. I think intellectually you believe this. You believe this kind of in the atmosphere. But I'm talking about we need to get to where that's so deep in our hearts that we're so desperate for His presence that there is nothing else. That we're not settling for routine, tradition, habit, or custom. That we're not settling for things that are familiar or comfortable. Balance between preparation and revelation. Maybe there's some truth to that. Certainly, and I don't want anybody to misunderstand me, it's a mistake to never prepare, to never study, to uh, never anticipate what resources or information the Lord might call on you to use for His purpose. That's a mistake. And among our ranks, there's people who go too far in that direction. 
I've heard of people getting up and saying they didn't need their Bible, didn't need to study it, God would fill their mouth. No, if you have that attitude, your mouth is going to be filled with your own foolish thoughts. That's what happens. I've seen it. But the other extreme is equally or maybe even more dangerous. And that is if I become studied enough, intellectual enough, prepared enough, then that is pleasing to the Lord. And while it's pleasing to the Lord for us to study and do our best, a workman should rightly divide the word of truth. He should study to show self-approved. All of that is appropriate, but what we must know is without the power of God, it's not what it could be. No amount of preparation, no amount of preparation can replace the manifest presence of God. I guess part of why this message is on my heart is I I preach in a lot of different churches. I go to different churches. I see the way people do things differently. I listen to different sermons from people from different regions who have the same patterns. It's amazing. They follow the same preaching patterns. I'm like, where did you get that from? Show me one three-point sermon in the Bible. And yet, that is the established pattern of preaching. It's always, I'm going to... Point one, point two, and finally point three. And this system. I'm not saying that's bad, but it, it, if it's always that way, you start to wonder if the Lord is in it as much as He could be. I'm not saying we should be chaotic or unprepared. I'm saying there's a limit to our preparation. And part of why that's on my heart is what I've seen, but also for this church. Uh... If it's the Lord's will for you to continue in the future as a church, say, well, you shouldn't say that. I'm a practical person. I can't not say it to a building that's largely empty. If it's God's will for you to continue in the future, you need a man, I don't know who it'll be, who is hungry for God's presence, who will not settle for routine, who a preaching pattern is not enough. You have to have that. And nothing else will do. The Lord doesn't want us to be underprepared, but it's, I think, maybe even worse to be overprepared. Because we start to think we can do something. There's a time in my own studies, and I'm not a model preacher, I'm just me. That's all I can be. We were talking about that before service. But there's a time in my own studies when I get to the point where I say, I don't need to make any more notes. I don't need to prepare anymore. I don't need to plan anymore. I just need to sit in this that's on my heart. That takes some vulnerability. It takes some... It puts you in a place of insecurity. To feel that, not just as an idea, but as a conviction in your spirit, is uncomfortable because you have no control. But it's necessary. Because I don't know what you need. I might think I do. And as I'm preparing, there's things on my heart and a path that the Lord may lead me down with. There's times that He wants me to abandon that. And He has something more or better. Let me ask you this, and this is for you to consider, I guess, as you have different people preach and for preachers. How do we know if we've become imbalanced in our preparation? How do we know if we've become imbalanced? How do we know if it's too much? How do we know if the preparation is more than reliance on the Spirit? It's simple. The very moment we begin to rely on any of our preparations, we're imbalanced. Should we prepare 100%? But when we start to rely on it, it's not just an imbalance, it's sin. Because we start to think we can do something that only God through His Spirit can do. Jesus said in John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Brothers and sisters, it's simple. Either we believe that or we don't. It's like Elijah when he was battling the false prophets of Baal. 
If the Lord is God, serve Him. If Baal, serve Him. But don't halt between two opinions. Listen, brothers and sisters, either what Jesus said is true. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Either that's true or it isn't. And we try to take that and add something more to it. Yeah, it's the Spirit that gives life, but... This is what Jesus, not what Josh said. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I don't just believe that. I know it. Because I've seen the impotence of my own flesh. I've seen the illusion of my own strength crumble. I've seen the ineffectiveness of any of my own plans. I've seen the just pitifulness of my own mind and my own plans and my own thoughts. The inability of any of that to change anybody's life. And that's, that's, isn't that the foundation of what we really want as God's people to see people's lives changed? I'm to the point in my life, I don't care much anymore about winning an argument or getting somebody to agree with me or getting some. well, my wife might disagree with that, but I'm talking about real things, not just petty things in your house. I mean, with things that matter, I don't care if I'm right. I want people to be free. I want people to know Jesus. I get no satisfaction from somebody just agreeing with me. I used to. When I was younger, I liked arguing and winning arguments. And in time, the Lord showed me how lacking that is. It's nothing for me to win an argument. It doesn't help anybody. How many times have you won the argument and lost the person? I have. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I hear people say... We need more systematic teaching. Is that true? Sure. Sure it is. It seems like there's always extremes in everything in life and in religion as well. And one of the extremes is like nothing deep, nothing substantial, nothing meaty. It's all about entertainment and being comfortable and being happy. <laughs> and so people who are well-intentioned come up with another extreme. And the, the, the reform movement that's going on in Baptist churches right now, that's largely what they're doing. It's trying to be extra serious and extra deep and extra biblical. And this is a... Look, you can't counterbalance things that are wrong. Only God can fix them. Do we need more systematic teaching? Sure we do. Sure we need more systematic teaching. But listen to what the man who was the most systematic teacher in all of the, probably all of Scripture, definitely all of the New Testament letters, listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul, who, let's just remember, he was, he was trained under all the right people. He was one of the smartest people around. He was one of the most educated people around. God transformed his life, saved him. And he said, all that stuff that I did before, all that th stuff that I knew, I consider garbage, rubbish. The literal is a dung heap, a heap of manure. All of my religious knowledge was equal to a heap of manure. Here's what he said, the one who was the most systematic of teachers. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I told you all, that's uncomfortable. It's much more comfortable to come prepared, know exactly what you want to say. Like comedians, they, those jokes, 90%, probably 99% of them, those jokes are rehearsed. They're planned, they're tried out on other people. None of them are uh, extemporaneous. That's much more comfortable than getting up here, being with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do we need more systematic teaching? Yeah, sure. But without the power of God, it doesn't matter. There's too many preachers who spend too much time in their study and not enough time in in the broken world. You don't get the power of God from books. 
You get it from depending on Him through life. Should we study? Absolutely. But there's a limit. Studying doesn't save anybody. Fine speech doesn't save anybody. Wisdom doesn't save anybody. Jesus Christ saves. We need to remember that. You say, this is all stuff I believe. It's all stuff I've known. It's all stuff I've heard my whole life. We need to live it. When we get to where we actually believe it in our bones, things will change. Where there is nothing else. We come together and say, if we don't have the power of God, none of it matters. That's what I crave. That's what I desire. I, I the, helped in a revival earlier this year, and sometimes I say things too directly or too boldly, but sometimes I can't help it. And I told them the first night, I said, if we don't follow the Lord and He doesn't lead these services, I'm going to feel like this whole week was a waste of time. I guess I can be honest. Maybe that's too bold, maybe it's too harsh, but... Do you know what it's like to be hungry? We're supposed to have a spiritual hunger that only Jesus can fill. Nothing else. I think some of us have never been hungry long enough to know what that actually feels like. Where one thing matters. This little baby, she's getting better about it, but especially when she was younger, when she needs to eat, there is nothing else. Being held, being comforted, little goo goo gaga games, playing, none of it. None of it matters anymore. When she's hungry, only her mama's milk will satisfy. Do you know we're taught that desire, the sincere milk of the word? We have to get to the place of utter, helpless, infant like dependence on God. Everything else is an illusion. There is no other food. Doesn't matter how good of a speaker the preacher might be. Doesn't matter how much good information he might have. If we're not being fed spiritual food, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If we're not being fed, we're not being fed. That's why you can go to a church to the smoothest service where everything is nice and beautiful and comfortable and leave hungry. And that's why you can go among broken people where things aren't necessarily comfortable, smooth, planned out, and leave satisfied. Because the presence. Now, you could go to a smooth, comfortable church and the presence of God be there. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Absolutely. I'm just saying one can't replace the other. She can be fed, my baby, and held, and comforted. But what she really needs is the milk. <laughs> Do you see? Yeah, maybe we do need more systematic teaching. But at what cost? Everything in life is a trade-off. I see churches, let's have a, a Wednesday night Bible study, a Sunday night Bible study, a Saturday morning men's meeting, whatever it is. That's all fine. But what are you not doing because you're doing that? How many Wednesday night Bible discussions do we have when what we really need is a prayer meeting. You don't get food from just talking about information unless the presence of God is there. When we get hungry enough that we say, look, I like holding your hand, I like hugging you, I, I like being held, what I need is food. That's when we'll start to see things change. Systematic teaching is good, but we need to realize you can pretty much only do one thing at a time, and what's it replacing? You, you could have a, some churches do this, a year or two or three or five year long sermon series or study series. What's it replacing? Is it replacing the unscheduled, unpredictable, manifest power of God? If it is, it's not good. People say we need more religious training. Oh, I agree with that too. We, we need to learn more. We need to know more. We need to study more. But don't forget, listen, this one's going to get to the heart. 
The most thoroughly trained people in all the history of Judaism were the ones who killed Jesus. Religious training alone is not the answer. If religious training were the answer, those people would have been the first to surrender to Jesus. I saw a testimony recently, some of you saw it too, of an Orthodox Jew saved by the the love and power and grace of God. And this man was so overcome by joy. He was just grinning, tears running down his face. And he was, he, it was like this. He saved a Jew. That's what he was saying. He said, I wouldn't even say that name. That's how he referred to Jesus. And then he talked about the sweetness. And he said he took all the junk away. The junk. Religion. Orthodox religion. He called it junk. Sounds really similar to Paul when God saved him. Rubbish, manure, junk. Religious training alone is not the answer. Listen, if religion were enough, if we could just have more seminaries, more schools, more teaching, we wouldn't need Jesus. Just have more religion. All you have to do is look around with open eyes. And you will see the utter impotence of all religious activity. I want to be clear. The flesh profits nothing. Either you believe that or you don't. I believe it. The flesh profits nothing. There is nothing you can do in your flesh to please God. There's nothing you can do in your own strength. Religion apart from the Spirit is completely powerless. Period. Religion doesn't have the power to redeem. Religion doesn't have the power to heal. Religion doesn't have the power to save. Religion doesn't have the power to give new life. Religion doesn't have the power to transform. No. Apart from the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, religion is dead. And without the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, religion will only produce death. Either we believe that or we don't. I don't think most religious people actually believe that. But it's what Scripture teaches. I heard a man one time, he called Jesus the enemy of dead religion. He was the enemy of dead religion. You know who he battled with, who he was hard on, who he was harsh with? Religious people who justified themselves and looked at other people like they were less. You know who he was gentle, kind, and showed unlimited mercy to? Honest-hearted sinners. Two men went down to the temple to, to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. Jesus told this. The Pharisee prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, or even as this publican. <laughs> Listen, brothers and sisters, that is what religion does to our hearts too. We start to feel better than other people that aren't the same brand of religious as we are. But the publican, tax collector, could not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. He prayed thus within himself. He prayed and beat on his chest, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He, what was he? Broken and humble in spirit. The Lord is near to those and saves those who are broken and contrite in spirit. Jesus says that man went down to his house justified, not the religious man. Religion is dead. Death only produces death, brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't give us a religion. He gave us life. In the form of a relationship with the eternal God through His Holy Spirit. That's not religion. Only life can produce life and life only comes from the life giver alone. Period. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Either we believe that or we don't. Jesus didn't say, I'm giving you a way to follow. He didn't say, I'm giving you this system. He didn't say, I'm giving you this process or this set of customs. He said, I'm giving you myself. 
I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If we don't have Jesus, we're not in the right way. I don't care what our customs are, what our sign on our door says, which songbook we use, what kind of traditions we follow, what church covenants on the wall. It doesn't matter. He said, I am the way. And listen, brothers and sisters, if we don't have Him, we might have right information, but we're not in the truth because He is the truth. And if we don't have Him, we might have some good routines or habits, but we don't have life because He is life. The idea that religion has some merit or that religious activity produces some good has resulted in all sorts of church activities that are devoid of the power of God. You know what I'm talking about. Even as a kid, I'm talking even before I was saved, I disliked empty church games. Some of the bigger churches, they would have these games that try to be fun for the kids and make you want to come and mashed potatoes and pantyhose and whipped cream. And just I never liked that stuff. You know why? It wasn't real. And once I was saved, I really didn't like any of it. Is having fun okay? Absolutely. But the idea that religion has some merit produces some of that kind of stuff. Let's just get together and do something. As long as there's kids here, we're doing something good. As long as... Jesus is life. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the way. There is nothing else. This applies especially to us old-time Baptists. If the previous generation... I'm talking Brother David's generation and the ones older. My great-grandparents' generation. If that generation was somewhat resistant to religious training and routine, and I understand why they were... Our generation may be relying on it too much. We want it to be a little bit routine, a little bit comfortable, a little bit predictable. We want it to be a little familiar. What we need is the power of God. I want to get back to what I mentioned about the, the teaching, the, this, this new trend. Expository preaching. Expository preaching is necessary. Expository preaching is where you go verse by verse, you dig down, you explain, this is what the Greek meant, this is what the Hebrew, this is what this word really means. This, that's good. And I would say some expository preaching is vital for the health of the congregation. We need deep, reasoned, sound teaching. But, there can be an overemphasis on this. We can begin to rely too heavily on the preparation required for expository preaching, and the people can become complacent with the routine that's produced through repetition of this activity. So what am I talking about? While we must preach in an expository manner from time to time, we need to beware of expository teaching becoming verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book for months and months and years. God doesn't work that way in a box. Do we need systematic teaching? Sure, sometimes. Is expository teaching good? Yes, but what we need more than that is revelation. Jesus didn't just give us information. He gives us, he gives us in the present tense, He gives us revelation through His Spirit. Without a vision, the people perish. You know what that means in Hebrew? Without a direct revelation from the Lord, the people throw off restraint. Without a direct revelation from the Lord, we will not survive. We need good information, but it's not enough. We need the power of God. Without a direct revelation from the Lord, we won't make it. Moses. Now this is one of my favorite examples of what I'm talking about. He came to a place where God was so fed up with the children of Israel and their lack of dependence on Him and lack of faithfulness that God told Moses, I'm going to kill all of them and start over with you. Moses interceded on their behalf. He reminded the Lord of His promises. He implored God not to do that. The Lord answered His request, the desire of His heart. 
But before he did, he said, uh, these people are stiff-necked. I can't go with them. You can still go to the promised land. You can still have my protection, but I can't go. Do you remember what Moses said? He said, Lord, if your presence go not with us, carry us not up hence. How else shall the nations around us know that we're your people and you're our God? Brothers and sisters, this is... If, I'm, if you're not tracking with me, if I'm not getting to you, this is what I'm trying to say. What makes us different, if we're different from any other congregation, any other religious group, any other denomination, is only the power and presence of God. That's it. There is nothing else. Moses told the Lord, and I'll paraphrase, but he was basically, his heart was saying, your blessings aren't enough, I need you. When you're hungry enough, that's how it is. Lord, I don't just want a comfortable church building, a nice pastor, a pretty whatever, predictable this or that. I need you. There is nothing else. That's what Moses prayed. And part of the reason we have what we have today. The true presence and power of God is all there is. I'm not against... Sound teaching, systematic teaching, any of that is necessary. But it ought to concern us if we follow the same pattern week after week after week without the Holy Spirit ever showing up and completely obliterating our routine. That should be a concern. Because as we read in Isaiah 66, not only is he not confined by this building, or any building, he made it all. No routine we could hold him in. There's a place for systematic teaching. There's a place for, for even some routine. But we need to beware that we're not relying on routine instead of revelation. And I'm, I wish all of God's people would hear this. We can get too comfortable, too familiar with our routine. Our habits, our customs. The only thing that will help is God. Sometimes we have to turn down the noise. Often in this culture. Sometimes we have to turn down the noise, even the noise of our own religious activities. To discern the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit. And what He would have us do. You know what I long for? I wish we would do occasionally. Come together because it's on our hearts and just sit in silence and just feel whatever God's showing us. We don't do that often enough. We're always trying to fill up the empty silence with something, some activity, some this song, this take up the offering, do this, do that, go. That's fine. Sometimes I wish we would just sit in His presence. You go through sometime when you're reading David's Psalms, all the times they, he says, Selah. We don't know exactly what that word means, but scholars think it means something like stop and meditate on this. It's all throughout his writings. I wish sometimes after we preach, instead of having a handshake and a song and an altar call, we would just sit there for ten minutes in complete, absolute silence until God moves. And I'm not saying that should become a routine either. <laughs> we might be tempted to concede, yes, we need the power of God, but, but we also need this or that. Yeah, we need God's power, but we also need this, this routine. This. Listen, the true presence and power of God is all there is. Period. There are no other things. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? It does, there, there is no religious thing that can substitute for the power and presence of God. We know that. But I want you to realize there's no religious thing that makes any, any, any merit or any satisfaction in God's heart toward us. Period. There is no religious activity that pleases Him. There is only the presence and power of God. There are no replacements and only a people who are pitiful and anemic spiritually would settle for anything else. Do you hear me? 
God's people. I'm talking to myself too. When we come together in His house and settle for a predictable routine, that is a sign of our own spiritual sickness. A healthy baby, they don't settle when they're hungry. A hug's not enough. A handshake's not enough. Singing isn't enough. They need food. We must have the Holy Spirit among us. Period. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit who will guide us into all truth. We can be right, we think, but right information is no substitute for Holy Spirit-led truth. And the more I try to serve the Lord and try to preach, the more interested I am in being fed than right. (laughs) They're not the same thing. Is it important to be... I don't even want to say it that way. Is it important to practice truth? Is it important to know the right thing? Is it important to try to do the right thing? Absolutely 100%. But you can be right and devoid of the power of God, which makes you wrong. Remember in Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, the church that he had the most concern with was the one who lost their first love. Only God can satisfy. And maybe I'm harping on it, maybe I'm saying it over and over, but it's in my heart. Until we get to the point, like a baby that we remember that there is nothing that can do what the presence of God can do, until we are completely consumed by that, we're not going to see what God wants us to see. I hope this is a message that goes home with us. I hope you wake up in the middle of the night troubled by it. I hope God uses it to break you some more. And me. It's not comfortable, but it's necessary. My little baby or any other, but she's not embarrassed about her helplessness when she's hungry. She's just hungry. There is no posturing. There's no... We need to be like that. God, I need you. We get in our religious routines and we somehow get a little bit embarrassed that we need the Lord. What am I talking about? You have a day where you feel depressed or down or too weak or not. You're human. You're supposed to feel that way sometimes. Those days you're probably just more honest than the other ones. There's something that only God can give. I want you to consider these questions. If we don't have the power of God, what do we have? Think about it. Think about it this week. If we don't have the power of God, what do we have? If we don't have the presence of God, what do we have? If the Holy Spirit is not clearly in our midst, what are we really doing here? And I'm not going to answer those questions directly. I want you to pray about it. If the Holy Spirit meets with us, wonderful. If if He's not powerfully here, what are we doing here? Jesus said in Mark 8, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's what I'm talking about. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. That's where we need to get. I don't care what they think. I'm not worried about what you think. I want to know what God wants. And I'm not saying I actually feel that way. I wish I did more often. But the truth is, my flesh cares what they think. It cares what you think. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to say hard things. But you know what I want more than that? God. 
We need to be more concerned with pleasing Him than anybody else. We need to be more concerned with serving Him than, t- than our own comfort. And it, it is not a comfortable thing to take up your cross. That is an awareness that my body is being prepared for death. That's not comfortable, but it is absolutely essential. I want to make sure you understand me. I'm not saying all religious activity is automatically bad. I'm saying that all religious activity is inherently incomplete, insufficient, ineffectual. That it can never be enough. Period. God didn't just give us a set of standards. He gave us a Savior. Praise His holy name for that. He didn't just give us rules to follow. He gave us a brother and a friend who's also the Savior of the world. He didn't just give us some kind of life ethic to loosely base our lives on. He gave us the living way. That's what I'm trying to talk about is the power of a new and living way. How else, as Moses said, how else will the people around us know that we are your people and you are our God unless your presence go with us? Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to you to be old-time Baptist? What does it actually mean to you? What do you say when somebody says, are you all Southern Baptists? What, what do you say? What do you think? Do you get uncomfortable? Do you think about some of the things in our ranks that you don't really want to associate with? Do you maybe point those out and say, well, we're not that? Where does your heart go? Our heart needs to go to the presence of God, the new and living way. A new birth that you can actually know happened. Do you know how many churches around us who don't even talk about salvation? Oh, they use the word. But churches are full of church leaders. And I'm not being mean. I've talked to so many of them. When you hammer down and say, how do you know you're saved? They'll say, well, I never really thought about it. I've just been absorbed into this way. I've had people tell me I've been a Christian my whole life. That's tragically absurd. If you've never been born, you're not alive. You can't be a human your whole life. You have to be born first. It's the same with spiritual things. I've used this analogy before. I want to use it again. This idea of I've just always been a Christian or I've just always been here is like if a little child, you know, they're having their maybe say eighth birthday and they go and they don't know anything about it, but then they have a little friend who's having her birthday, and they go to her party, and it's fun, and they celebrate it, and they talk about she was born eight years ago, and the little girl comes home to her mom and says, my friend had a birthday, I've never heard of that. And her mom says, oh honey, you've always been alive. That's what this is like. Jesus said, unless you're born from above, you're not alive. That's what makes us different. And if we don't have that true foundational teaching along with the power and presence of God, what do we have? Brothers and sisters, I I, I pray, I mean sincerely, I pray that God will help us not settle for religious activity. That He'll make us hungry for the real presence of God. It's not going to change in a moment or a day probably. But I pray that He will begin to change our hearts, show us what's real, convince us of our own hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you want to be filled by the righteousness of God, or do you want to go about establishing your own righteousness? I want to be filled by His righteousness, but before I can be, I've got to realize I'm hungry. might need to quit eating some junk food which involves turning down the noise, being alone with ourselves and realizing we actually have a lack and a need that only He can fill. It starts with us, brothers and sisters. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, talked about everything else, everything else other than the manifest power of God 
he referred to as weak and beggarly elements. Those people were converted by God, they were born from above, they were saved, and then they had some Judaizers come in and try to tell them, that's, that's good, but you also need to do these traditions. And Paul came and told them, and he said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who put you under a spell that you think any amount of religious activity is pleasing to God? That's what he was saying. He said, This only would I learn of you. Did you receive what you received through power of God or through these activities? And we know the answer. If you're saved, it came 100% through God and His grace and His power. Not through anything that you could do. And if we're going to serve Him, brothers and sisters, it must come 100% through His power, His grace, His mercy. Not anything we can do. Any religious activity is weak and beggarly in comparison. I've done my best to try to preach this. And even in doing so, I realize, in words I can't even express, the utter impotence, like I talked about, of my own words. And I can only pray that God will take these words into your hearts with His Spirit. My words are nothing. I'm just a messenger. And the message I preach is much greater than I am. Oh, I pray that God will remind us. I pray that He'll make us hungry again. I pray that He'll restore reality to our lives. The reality that we're desperate without Him. That there's never anything we can do other than surrender to Him. Yeah, you can do all things through Christ, but it's through Christ. Period. I love you all. I pray the Lord uses this for His purpose and His glory. And The Lord knows. He knows what He wants.